Hi, this is Chef Piet, and this is the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy, host and creator of the Toasted Sister Podcast, a show about indigenous food and food sovereignty. This podcast is just over five years old, and it's the largest collection of Native voices focused on Native food. If you're just now starting to listen, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, rate and review this show on iTunes, share these episodes with your friends, and follow Toasted Sister on social media. And if you really love what I do here, please sign up and support this podcast on Patreon. Your support on Patreon really helps make this podcast possible. So, you've guessed it. Chef Stephanie Piette de Spain is my guest today. She's a private chef, food entrepreneur, wellness and nutritional leader, and most recently she is the winner of Gordon Ramsay's Next Level Chef. The latter has Payette making waves in food media, native media, and social media, and I have to say that she is really handling it pretty well. She's full of energy, she's really humble, and her story plays out just like a movie. So why don't we just get into it? Here's my interview with Prairie Band Potawatomi and Mexican chef Piet de Spain. Well, welcome to the Toasted Sister podcast then, and congratulations, Piet. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. How does it feel? I mean, it's a couple of days after your big win over at uh, Next Level Chef. You know, it's been amazing um, just being able to tell my story and connect with people from all over the place. And just hearing like the outpour of support from the Native community has just meant so much to me because that's, you know, a big purpose as to like why I'm doing what I'm doing is for the Native community. So Ever since I was now announced as the winner, I've had so many people reach out with support and people from my own community, my own reservation and all over the place. It's been so amazing and doing lots of interviews and talks and um, making plans for the future. So I'm really excited, you know. So, of course, along with your title as uh, the first winner of Next Level Chef, there is a big chunk of change that uh, is part of that whole you know, title there. What are your plans for that? So I actually don't get my prize winnings like right away. Um, they wait a little longer than, you know, like they wait a couple months and then they give you the prize winning. And so in between then and now, I'm literally just traveling um, around and doing a lot of talks with different um, communities, Native communities for some are from um, for the youth center, some are from the elderly center, some of the talks and demos I'm doing are for the diabetes prevention centers on different reservations. And so 
my goal right now is just to really connect with the community because this is the community that I'm representing. And so I think it's in everyone's best interest that I reconnect and really hear the voices of the people in the community and, and figure out how I can best serve them on, on this big platform. And so my goal is really right now just to reconnect and, and give back and do lots of cooking demos and meet and greets and cooking for the elder center on my reservation. And so I'm doing that in the meantime, I would love to be able to invest into an actual like restaurant or um, like a food truck or something of that nature, but I'm doing pop-up restaurants in the meantime. So I'm kind of just, you know, going with what the people want at the moment. I'm just here to, to spread the love and the good food. All right. So I watched, you know, a couple of highlights, uh, a couple of um, previews from that uh, season. And of course, saw a whole bunch of really good food. But could you tell me about your winning dishes? For the finale, our challenge was to cook a three course meal on all three levels in 90 minutes. And we were responsible for timing our courses, like on how long we our cook time on each course on each level. So my first course was empanadas from scratch and they were beef and pork empanadas with an avocado salsa. And then the second course was a striped sea bass with a, with caramelized onions and a um, sweet potato puree. And then the final course for the meat dish on the top floor was a rack of lamb with fingerling potatoes and, and green like they're called hair covers, like green beans wrapped in prosciutto. And then I made this Merlot sauce, like a red Merlot pan sauce. Nice. I mean, I, I have um, a rack of lamb sitting in my fridge. So I think maybe I'll try to recreate that <laughs> in my own kitchen. Um Wow. You know, this has given, you know, Native American food uh, another kind of highlight in the media. What do you hope uh, audiences learned about Native American food? I'm, I'm very grateful for the fact that we all live in this era where people are interested in trying something new. And I think this is the perfect season and perfect time for Indigenous and Indigenous people and Indigenous food to shine in the culinary world. Because if you think about, you know, the origins of a lot of ingredients, they've all started here in the U.S., you know, with Indigenous people. And a lot of people do not know that that history. They don't know that knowledge and the proper recognition is not given to the people of the original people of the United States of the U.S. And so my goal is that people just learn the knowledge, learn the ingredients, have respect for Indigenous people, um, recognize that we exist, we're here, we matter, and our culture matters. I'm really hoping to be able to kind of lead the growing path, I guess, of other Indigenous people that are chefs like myself to be able to come up in the culinary world and be successful. Um, well, you dedicated the win to Native American people. I mean, what does it mean to you to be in this spotlight when, you know, there are a lot of uh, other, you know, Native chefs who are out there doing the same thing and they're all kind of in their same, their, their different realms doing, you know, all kinds of awesome work. I mean, uh, where do you see yourself, you know, kind of in this whole Native food movement? My goal is to actually try to work with some of these other chefs and reach out to them and see in what way that we can, you know, collaborate together and be a bigger, stronger force, because I know how difficult it is going on this journey alone. And so I give my absolute like gratitude and appreciation for the other native chefs that are also kind of working up this 
uphill battle because it's hard for people to see and identify indigenous food as being something that's, you know, worth their dollar or worth their meal. And so I just like, I'm really grateful, obviously, to be one of those chefs. And I really would love to collaborate with some of them. And, you know, Sean Sherman is someone that's been doing an amazing job in that, in that field of just educating the world and educating people about indigenous culture, indigenous food, food sovereignty, the importance of that for indigenous people. And so my goal is just to, you know, learn as much as possible from them, as well as contribute what I, my skill set and, and my goals and my experiences with them and my successes, you know, and share all of that with the people and with those other chefs. And so my goal is really to collaborate and to become a stronger force together. You know, kind of back to the competition, uh, Next Level Chef, uh, tell me a little bit about working around and uh, with the other competitors. So the other competitors, wow. So everyone was so fantastic, phenomenal, amazing, like on not just the skill set level as chefs, but also as human beings, as people. And I think this is something that is maybe rare. I, I mean, I've never been on a cooking competition um, show that's been televised before, but I have watched them and I am looking at my, you know, my cast, I'm looking at others. I'm like, wow, this seems like a rare breed of people that have been able to, you know, collectively be here for this experience. And everyone was just so nice and so amazing. And we learned so much from each other. And, you know, a lot of us walked away as friends. We all, every single person in the cast, we all actively talk together every, almost every day on a group chat, just about what we're doing with our careers, you know, what types of food we're trying, what products we like, giving each other advice on career and social media, um, career paths and, you know, information on the culinary world and things that they've done and things that they've been successful and not successful at. So those people are so amazing and just cooking with them alone. Like, I didn't think I was going to make it that far in the competition because I was like, wow, these people like know what they're doing. And here I am just like, I'm not like a bad chef or anything, but I had imposter syndrome. And I was like, you know, some of these people have been cooking like their whole lives. And granted, I've been cooking, you know, since I was young also, but as a chef professionally, I've only been doing it for six years. And it isn't until the last few years that I started focusing on indigenous food. So in my mind, I'm thinking, do I know enough? Is my skill set sharp enough to be able to compete against these people? And I was, you know, kind of having imposter syndrome, but the more you get to know these people, the more you realize like everyone is kind of starting at their own place in their career. And yes, some people have had more experience, but you know, there's a lot that you can give and take from them, but man, it was crazy because those people, they know how to cook. Like (laughs) they know flavor, they know techniques, they know all the things. And we're all just as nervous for each other as we are for ourselves. So, you know, it was pretty interesting though, but they're amazing people. Yeah, you know, I totally relate to that uh, imposter syndrome because that's that's um, a lot of the stuff that I felt and had to deal with uh, starting my podcast, too, because I felt like in the beginning, this was just like a little, you know, side project. And, oh, I thought it was fun. And I like to talk about food. Hey, it'd be cool to start a podcast and uh, talk to Native chefs about food. And here it becomes this big, like, uh, resource, you know, for this whole Native food movement. Movement and um, I should get ready to do like another series of like, what are they up to now? Because a lot of the chefs that I interviewed, a lot of the people I interviewed, um, you know, years ago, they are in totally different spaces right now, <laughs> doing it totally different work. But um, yeah, there came a point where 
uh, you know, maybe like a year and a half ago or two years ago, time goes by so fast, but, um, you know, where I, I felt myself coming out of this imposter syndrome and really just kind of owning like, yeah, you know, I am, I'm pretty knowledgeable about this stuff. I mean, I didn't go to like, uh, I don't have like a bachelor's in like native food knowledge or anything like that, but, you know, talking to so many people, writing so many stories and, you know, putting together this podcast, you know, I've, I've realized like, yeah, yeah, I, I can talk about this because, you know, it's been a whole bunch of years that <laughs> I've been putting into this. And, you know, you know, I hope folks who are listening to this, I hope you realize that um, you have what it takes. And if you're feeling any kind of imposter syndrome, which I think is pretty common, especially with, you know, for women and for Native people, you know, we feel like we don't belong in certain areas you know, you do. You do really belong in all of these areas, especially if the work that you do has impacted your life, impacted other people's lives. It's amazing what you can realize and what more work you can do when you realize like how, <laughs> how, 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 um, you know, valuable you are in, in this space. I think the biggest thing that I've learned on my journey is You just have to be authentically yourself. And we all are human beings. We all start somewhere. We're not, we don't just come out of the womb perfect and super knowledgeable. You know, it takes years of practice and years of, you know, studying. And I like to say like resharpening my tools or reconditioning and like kind of going back to like, you know, what is it that I'm trying to do here? And you have a place to start and then you accumulate all these experiences that then, you know, some people say, Oh, practice makes perfection or practice makes you an expert, but you're not always going to be an expert at everything. And without all that practice, you can't become this like super knowledgeable person. So along the way, just enjoy it. And, and that's what I've learned because I've, I've, you know, I have that same, um, you know, mindset that you came into like, Oh, like, who am I to talk about this? You know, it's like, I have just as much of a voice as the next person that's important. And what I have to say is important. And the fact that we alone are even trying to embark on a path that's, you know, kind of bettering future generations. And we're acknowledging like, Hey, there's information that I want to learn. Like people need to hear that and people need to see the authenticity of your journey and where you started. And then it's super cool for your, your followers or your listeners to be able to see that growth within you. So by you trying to come off and be like, I know everything, like you are doing yourself and your listeners or your chef or your students or whoever it is that I'm cooking for my clients, I'm doing them a disservice by not being able to see my growth. Because when you do something and people see you succeed, it, it in a way gives them permission to be able to do the same thing. Why as human beings, we feel like we need permission to do something. We don't, we can just do it, you know? So I think it's super important that you just stay authentic to what you know, who you, who you are and where you are in your journey and your path. On this journey that you are on, who are some of your inspirations? Some of my inspirations in the food journey, I was in the culinary world, has been Padma Lakshmi. I am a super, super, super huge fan of her. She's like so authentically herself. She's unapologetic. She stands up for what she believes in. She does not care what people think. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's talented. And she cares about the world and about people. And so I, I've looked up to her for a long time. And I love that she did um, her... Netflix series, uh, Taste of Nation, and one of them was highlighting indigenous food and culture. 
And it was one of the best episodes of the entire, and I'm not being biased because I am native, but like it literally, I feel like truly was one of the best episodes of her entire season that they feature that I think she, maybe that was her first season, but she's an incredible woman. And she's someone that I look up to, um, from a career standpoint and someone that's in the limelight, because I've always, ever since I was a kid, kind of wanted to be in a way like famous. I don't know. That sounds kind of like vain. I don't want it to sound vain, but I've always just kind of felt like I wanted to like impact a lot of people. And the only way you can impact people is if people like know your name and you're fame, quote unquote famous. But as the years have, you know, as I, I've grown, um, I realized that you don't have to be quote unquote famous to impact people's lives. And so I've just been kind of living my life that way. I also look up to Sean Sherman, you know, he's one of the most talked about and well-known native chefs and a lot of what he's talked about in his interviews and in during his TED talk, where he talks a lot about food sovereignty. And I've learned a tremendous amount from him alone, just, you know, walking in his path and sharing his story and sharing these amazing, beautiful recipes that he's developed using only indigenous ingredients. And that's something that I really strive to be able to do and be able to create my own recipes, not using any processed foods or sugars or dairy or anything that isn't an indigenous ingredient. I'm still, I'm still working on that part, but, um, those are two people that I can say off the top of my head that I've been really, really impactful that I think people would know. Um, another person that uh, is my mother, which, you know, the world got to see my mom on a big platform. Also, you know, like, you know, my mom represents something also like she represents every like native mom that wants something more for their kids. And my mom has an incredible story herself. And so her, the amount of strength and resilience that woman has has been super inspiring to watch throughout my life. Yeah. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit of her story? Oh, absolutely. So my mother is native and Mexican descent, and um, she was actually given up for an for adoption when she was a baby. So my great grandmother and my grandmother on my native side, she kind of struggled and she does still struggle a little bit with the fact that, hey, like my family didn't want me, but she was adopted into a family that definitely wanted her, definitely loved her. Her adopted parents were a Croatian, a Croatian woman and a Mexican man. And so we are very multicultural people because she grew up with all of, you know, she's Native American and Mexican, but also raised by a Mexican and a Croatian woman. So she has all this like cultural knowledge and background that she and then, you know, crossed over to her children. And, and we, she taught us those things about, you know, being diverse and the importance of learning other cultures and other languages. And my mother's adopted father, um, he was from Guanajuato, Mexico, and he was in the army and then later on ended up uh, retiring as a janitor. Grew up very, very poor in Mexico, but he, you know, did something really smart with his money and he invested and he was able to like spend his, you know, a huge part of his life, like just traveling the world. And so my mother that was able to experience that and see that instill that into her children but it wasn't until she was pregnant with me that she rekindled um and reconnected with her biological family on the reservation in osage although we are not osage people that's just happened that just happens to be where my grandmother and my great-grandmother were living at the time they were living in pahuska oklahoma on the wrist osage res and so then I got to be born into that situation of her, that moment, that chapter in her life of her rekindling her relationships with her biological family. And then I was raised in this beautiful like chapter of her life where she's 
giving birth to her first daughter, but also rekindling the relationships with all the women of her family and all her whole family, like on her mother's side, her native side. She's just uh, been a strong person to deal with just, you know, I think a lot of people out there that have gone through that process of being adopted or, or being in an orphanage or being a foster home. It's like, it, it does something to you um, on a mental level and a physical, uh, not physical, but an emotional level where it does affect you of like, why don't these people want me? And so you kind of live your life trying to be a people pleaser, or you live your life chasing people that are going to accept you. And so I think, you know, for her, she's gone through a lot of those battles of just, you know, being a yes person and it affecting her in a negative way most of the time, because they're not people that genuinely appreciated her or loved her. It caused her to put, you know, be in a lot of situations that like hurt her and did a lot of damage and created traumas. And so she went through a lot in life. And then, you know, being a single mother of four children and we lived in poverty. We were once like, you know, in a shelter, like in a mother's shelter where a women's shelter, we had to stay there and because we didn't have anywhere to go. You know, she's just a person that regardless of what happens, she always made, you know, something happened at the end of the day where we felt loved or, you know, we were taken care of some way or another, but it was, you know, a really hard life that she's lived. And so me being able to see my mom do that. And at the end of the day, still be this wonderful person that's so strong and so resilient and so supportive and still loving. And she's the type of person that will give you, you know, her last dollar to, for you to go get something to eat because you're, you know, you're in a less fortunate position than she is, where she's like, you know, opened up her home to several people to come, you know, stay and live on her couch because she knows what it felt like, you know, to not have a place to stay and to feel the the weight of the world. And so she's always been someone that's opened up her heart and her home to people. And so I just think like, she's an amazing woman. She's my best friend. And, you know, having her be a part of the show was honestly the biggest highlight of my entire life was just seeing all that she represents and her to see her daughter, like live out her whole life dreams like in that moment was just like wow it was just so magical that's awesome that's great uh, your mom sounds like a, a really you know awesome person and I'm, I'm glad you guys got to um experience all of that uh together <laughs> you know i know there are similar stories uh you know hardship that we all experience especially in native america and um i think a lot of folks you know really recognize that and there was something that you mentioned in uh, another interview I, I forget what um, publication it was or maybe it was even on the on the actual show you experienced um, hardship yourself you experienced um, homelessness talk about some of the uh, the rocky parts of this this journey oh man yeah so when I first moved out here to Los Angeles I was actually dating someone and him and I had moved in together and so the transition was a little easier, like having someone like to somewhat support you or be there for you. And we ended up, you know, dating for a couple of years and then we broke up. But, you know, while you're trying to build a business in Los Angeles in a completely different city, it takes time to build, you know, clientele. And I was working in the automotive industry before I decided to be a full-time chef. And I was doing my automotive um, business developing work. And I was like, you know, doing good at that. And then I was, doing, um, running my private chef business on the side in Kansas city. And I wanted to move out of Kansas city and I wanted to move to LA. So I was going to give myself a couple of, of years to save up and to really plan out 
And then I met this person that kind of sped up that process and I ended up moving a lot sooner than I expected. And I wasn't really financially prepared for it, but you know, he was like, yeah, yeah, just come out here. Just, you know, come, come live with me now. Everything will be great. And everything was not great. He lied. <laughs> everything was not great. And <laughs> it was like a struggle. And I was like, man, okay, well, let me um, go get a job still working in automotive industry. And then still trying to do this like part-time private chef service, but you know, the universe works in mysterious ways. And I think like, you know, I, I'm a, firm believer in God and creator and, and expressing gratitude for every situation, even if, if it's not a good situation, but I was just working in a very toxic environment and it made it almost impossible to like, want to show up every day to like do this job. And it was in the automotive industry. And I was like, you know, this is just a sign that this is not where I need to be. And I ended up quitting my job six months into it. And then I was like, you know, I'm going to full-time chef it up, like 100% chef it up. I have to give my dreams of real fighting chance. And the only way that this is going to work is if I become a full-time chef. And so I had like little to no income coming in. And this guy was like over here struggling too. He, he himself was kind of like a entrepreneur and it just like put a lot of stress on the relationship. We ended up breaking up. So mid me trying to build this business and living with this guy, like we ended up breaking up and then I have to move out. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I don't even make enough money to pay rent here. How, like, what am I going to do? And um, I ended up just, you know, packing up everything into two suitcases. I put the rest of whatever I had in a storage unit until I could figure it out. And my friends were like, hey, come sleep on my couch. You know, like you have, you have a place to stay. And I had two suitcases in my car and that's where I kept all of my clothes, like in my car for, I want to say over about a year. And I was just couch surfing and taking up any opportunities that I could to help, you know, babysit and stay the night over people's house and just like do what I could to get by I was changing from one job to another job in my car. It was like kind of, it was the, it was like the real struggle. Like it was kind of like out of a movie, you know, like what I was experiencing because you have this person like myself, I consider myself of being, you know, really smart and like very courageous. And, you know, I think I have a lot of good, um, you know, things about me, but here I am like basically living out of my car and I'm like, how does this happen? You know? And, and I think to, I just thought to myself, you know, you just have to be grateful for the people that are here, like supporting you. And, you know, my mom and my dad were both like, you can always come back home. And I'm just like, I know this doesn't get, I don't think it can get any worse than this, but like, I have to give myself a real fighting chance and I know I can make this work. And, I can't just leave and go back. And I will feel like I failed like for the rest of my life. And I, I told my mom, I said, I still have, I still have the fight in me. And as long as I still have that fight, I'm going to continue to try to keep on this road and on this path. And I was, you know, um, teaching cooking lessons full-time. I started doing, I even worked at a hair salon as a manager part-time just to like have some money coming in. Like I was just doing all these odd jobs, but most of what I was doing, um, you know, full-time was, you know, cooking and, teaching cooking classes. And, um, I actually ended up throwing this dinner party for myself because I kind of came to this point and I had a meal prep service too, but I didn't have a house or a kitchen to cook meal preps out of. So I had to quit that. I had to like get rid of all my clients and say, cancel them out and say, I'm so sorry. Like I I'm closing the meal prep business down and they were really upset. But I'm like, listen, I have no home. Like I have no kitchen to cook this food out of. So I just ended up working full-time at a, um, store that sold cooking equipment. And then they had a room that they 
were teaching cooking classes. And so I started teaching cooking classes there and they hired me. It was kind of fake it till you make it because they hired me as something I wasn't qualified for. But I was like, yeah, I'm totally qualified. And they're like, okay, come on in. And I was like, all right, because it was pastry. And I was like, I don't really know pastry. And on my first day on the job, they were like, okay, now you have to teach people how to make croissants from scratch. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I was like Googling, I was YouTubing, Googling. And I was like, Google, I was like in the bathroom, like trying to watch a Google uh, or a YouTube video on how to make croissants. And I was like, there is no way. I was like, it takes like years to master croissants. And I have never made them from scratch a day in my life. And here I am like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? But it, it ended up like, actually working out because someone was like, we'll just take over this class because we have another class that we need you to fill the spot in for. So I was like, oh my gosh, what a huge sigh of relief. But I was like, man, like I really got to be honest with these people and tell them like, I have no idea how to do this. So they ended up placing me in a better position that worked for me. And I was um, then went from teaching pastry to teaching, um, to doing the date night classes. So then I was like with all the couples, like um, teaching them recipes, but it was really cool. But um man, it was just like the grind, grind after grind after grind. And then finally, um, I decided to host a dinner party, which is what I was talking about earlier. Um, just highlighting indigenous folks. I thought to myself, you know, what am I doing this for? You know, what, what kind of food do I really want to represent? Because, you know, all this other stuff is cool, you know, teaching people, but this is not like the recipes I want to be teaching. This is not what I want to be you know, sharing with the world or with these students. And so I thought to myself, you know, I would love to teach people about indigenous food and indigenous culture, because that's what I'm really passionate about. So the moment I started doing that, things really started turning around and more people started like wanting to try it. And it was something new and unique. And I hosted a dinner party and I sold, you know, 25 tickets for 25 seats um, for a five course meal. And I was like, oh, this is like something like I can do something with this. Like I can make money. I can do something I'm passionate about and people love it. And so after that, I was like, all right, this is what I want to do. But yeah, it took, it took a struggle. It took a lot of courage and a lot of long, long work days doing stuff I didn't want to do just to get to where I am today. And so, yeah. Um, Hopefully I'll never have to live in my car again. You know, everybody kind of has a little bit different definition of what indigenous fusion food is. Uh, what's your definition of indigenous fusion food? So indigenous fusion food is essentially myself, like on the plate. And since I'm of both Native American and Mexican heritage, a lot of those indigenous ingredients to both, you know, um, cultures and heritages, they cross-reference because the only thing that really separates us is a border and the influence of two different countries that came and invaded the Americas. I was like, you know, if I'm going to call myself indigenous, you know, like I'm going to take both of my heritages and put them together. And these are both the types of food that I love to eat and cook. And that I'm passionate about was I, I grew up eating Mexican food. I grew up with the traditions and the cultures of native ways. And I wanted to merge them and put myself on the plate. So a lot of the dishes that I make have influence of both cultures and they're bold, they're bright, they're so beautiful. And I, and I, I love the food that I create and people love it too. So my definition of indigenous fusion food is just representing people like myself, which we are all of a fusion of some sort. There's, you know, it's very rare that you find someone that's a 100% breed of anything. So a fusion is essentially all of us. Like we're all fusions. And if we're indigenous people of the Americas, like we can call ourselves indigenous fusion people. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Awesome. Um, you know, this is something that I've I've always been curious about, and I've wanted to make uh, maybe I'll make a whole podcast about it. But uh, dating as a foodie, dating as a chef, like, does that come into, you know, your passion about food? Do you want like a partner to have the same kind of passion? Because for me, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. Like, you know, I have nothing against vegans or vegetarians at all. I think they're doing an amazing service to the world. You know, Um, my grandfather is a hunter. You know, so I grew up eating wild game and he'd come with the whole deer and like we would, he would, you know, cut it up and give it out. And we would have deer in the freezer for, you know, a year or, you know, just eating off of like this deer meat or this. And so I grew up that way. And that's the way that I choose to remain in my life is, you know, a meat eater. And so here in LA, there's vegans and vegetarians left and right. And so um, I have like told myself, you know, like, I don't think I could ever date a vegan or a vegetarian because I, I love meat and I like meat and I love the process of the hunting and the giving things for its life and the pre- appreciation. I understand all of the, you know, information that's put out there about meat industries, but, you know, dating as a foodie, man, you know, I've, I can't date a picky eater. I cannot, you have to be open and you have to be like willing to like try some new things. Cause I am that way. And so, yeah, if I'm going to date anybody or have an interest, they have to, they have to love to cook. They cannot, they cannot shame me either. If I want to eat something that's a little, you know, little greasy, and a little sweet, or, you know, like I'm the type of girl that would go eat some pizza and then like follow up with like an ice cream sundae and just like eat all of the, like, the foodie things. And so I can't have someone that's shaming me. Like you really shouldn't do that. It's bad for your health or you're going to break out. Like, listen, this is my life. Let me live, you know? So I have to Mm -hmm. have someone that's willing to be open. I mean, I don't do stuff like that all the time, but I mean, every now and then it's really fun to just like experience all of the things of food. And so I have to have someone that's open-minded when it comes to food, but luckily I haven't had too much of a problem with that, but I did go on a date with this guy And we went to a pizza place, a pizza shop, and it was a first date and we sat down and I was like, okay, I want to order the meatballs and like pepperoni pizza and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, I actually don't eat meat. And I just looked at him like, why are we here at a pizza place? Like, why why are we at a vegan restaurant? And he's like, well, I'm usually able to like find stuff on the menu that I like. And I was like, well, you should have led with I'm a vegan because I probably would have gone on a date with you. Yeah. No, it is. It is pretty hard out there. I mean, it seems like for me, I can't have a discussion with a person who doesn't have, you know, knowledge about food or their idea of food is like, oh, I cook spaghetti once in a while. And I'm like, no, no, no. no. Or, or I have friends, you know, and I'm trying to I do my part as a friend to like break my friends into new um, adventures with food. And so I have friends that literally still eat just chicken nuggets and french fries all the time. And they are in their thirties. And I'm like, wait a minute, home girl. What is this? We need to open the horizons for you. Like, let's go out to eat. Let me pick everything. You try at least everything once. (laughs) All right. Um, Cool. Well, let's wrap this up um, here in just a minute. But I wanted to ask you about some of your first interests in food. I know you come from Mexican and Native heritage. So tell me about uh, some of your first interests in food. And, and did you ever have like a like a epiphany, like an aha moment where you're like, 
this food, this dish, this spoonful is, is a life changer. I want to do food now. I want to be a chef. I wish I had that moment, like that ratatouille moment where he eats the strawberry and the cheese together and like his mind explodes. <laughs> I, yeah. I know, like I wish I had that one specific moment that I can name. But I think for me, growing up with these two cultures that value food, it, it's it's um, a way to bring community together. So if you think of like ceremony or like powwow season, you know, like. You have the elders outside on the stovetops that are literally outside, you know, they're cooking in the sun or like they're cooking for the, the food for the, the dancers and for the families with the big pots and they're cooking for the whole family. And there's, you know, like that scenario in my head that I always think back to my child, it's like powwow season when the, like the women of the family are outside cooking on those stoves or those um, open fire flames, like cooking for everyone. I like cherish that memory so much. And I think that when I think of like the reason and being what made me like food so much was that sense of like love that those women are giving to cook outside all day, all morning for well, mostly all morning and afternoon for the dancers and for the families to eat once they do break and powwow and they have their little break. And so I think it's called a succession. No, I'm not sure what the terminology is for that, but when they have their break during the dancing and like they go eat, we all eat with the family. And I think that care and that love and bringing like the whole family together and it's a community thing that really sticks to me. And then also on my Mexican side, during Christmas, we have tamales, all the cousins and the aunts and the uncles, everybody's in the kitchen, like cooking. And my family is so competitive on my dad's side and my Mexican side, they're so competitive with their food and we have a big family. So most of the time we have to bring two turkeys, two hams, two sides, two of every single thing, because we have a whole family, like a huge family to feed. And so my family members will be like, you know, judging who had the best mac and cheese or the best like uh, cornbread stuffing or the best, you know, the most moist turkey or like, you know, they're always competitive with each other <laughs> or who had the best mole. And I had two two uncles that owned restaurants and my grandmother actually at one point owned a restaurant on my dad's side also. And so just kind of growing up in this family that loves food and they're so competitive and passionate about food. And that moment, you know, before every Christmas and Christmas Eve of everyone, like in an assembly line, like as a family, like making the tamales and, you know, you had like your one job. And so it's like a conveyor belt going down of tamales. And then at the, the next day, you know, you eat the tamales on Christmas morning or even that evening, depending on how early you got up to make them. Cause they take like four or five hours and then you have batches and batches and batches to cook. And so it was just such a treat, like a present, you know, that you're working towards and then you get it. And it's like so rewarding. And it's like, wow, my family made this together. We made these things that we enjoy every Christmas. So I think those two memories really like drive my passion when I think about why I decided to, you know, get into food and cooking. I was just raising these families that, you know, cherish those times of cooking together. And it's so valuable within our communities. And it adds that layer of like, enrichment, you know, into our lives on a cultural level. And so, but it wasn't until I was like in my early twenties and I decided I'm going to go to culinary school. I did a tour of the culinary school and I was walking through the kitchen and I was like, wow, like this is so cool. You know, the stainless steel ovens and tables. And it was just so cool just to see like this, like commercialized kitchen, which made, you know, now I look back, I'm like, it really wasn't that fancy, but because I had never worked like in a kitchen before I was like, wow, this is so cool. 
And there were like rows and rows and rows of these like stainless steel tables, like little like workspace areas. And, and I would just imagine myself like standing there, like cooking, learning how to do stuff. And they walked me into this pantry that had all these ingredients of things that I've never even seen before. And it's spices and sauces and things that I, you know, I had no clue what they were. And I was just so intrigued to the point that I signed up for cooking classes that same day that I did the tour. I was just like, yeah, I'm going to go do this tour. I heard about the school and then I did the tour and I was like, wow, signing up today immediately. Yes. Sign me up. So I think that was probably the moment that I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do was just being in that kitchen and being in that um, pantry with all of these cool ingredients. I was like, I want to learn about all of this always and forever. That was Chef Piet to Spain. Find her on Instagram at Chef Piet. If you're hungry for more indigenous food stories to listen to, I produce and host a special monthly show for Native America Calling called The Menu. In these episodes, which are usually scheduled around the last Friday of the month, I bring indigenous folks on the air to talk about the most recent food news and interesting stories. Follow Native America Calling radio program, myself, Andy Murphy, and Toasted Sister on social media for new episode alerts. Native America Calling is a live radio show all about indigenous issues and topics. We're on every weekday at 11 a.m. Mountain Time. And for more information, go to NativeAmericaCalling.com. Music by C.W. Ione. I'm Andy Murphy, host and creator of Toasted Sister. We'll see you next time.